This is Andrew T. Joining us on the show today, we have Dr. Ken Naliai, who is a professor at Brigham Young University here in Lai. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Professor Naliai, he's actually our uncle, so we'll refer to him as Uncle Ken. Thank <laughs> 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 you. It's a little uncomfortable when you say Dr. Naliai the whole time. But, uh, why don't you give our listeners a little background about who you are, how you got into the education sector, and... <clears throat> Kind of your background as a professor for the last 20 or so years now? Okay. Thank you. I am currently the director of field education at the social work department at uh, Brigham Young University, Hawaii. As the director of field education, I oversee the placement of social work majors into um, internships and field-based experiences, meaning they get to go and do volunteer service. Okay. at places around the world. And so I help them find a good match, and hopefully they go and do good things. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, they get to uh, claim um, a full semester mm-hmm. of credits and special arrangements for their school costs and mm-hmm. tuition and such by arriving at that part of their academic careers mm-hmm. in our social work program. In addition, I teach research methods and applied social statistics. I teach social policy, and I also teach the community program development and evaluation course Mm. on our campus. What do you think it is about education that drew you to pursue that in your professional life? Interesting question. uh, I'm not sure that when I started... Uh, in my career in education, if there is such a thing, <laughs> I um, <clears throat> that I thought I would be a professor mm. or that I would be a professor in social work in particular. I guess as a little kid, I, I thought I was going to be a, a cowboy like Lone Ranger. <laughs> <laughs> There's still time. <laughs> All I got to do is find the right horse. <laughs> I remember getting asked that as a kid. Um, yeah. You know, what, what what job would you like to mm-hmm. be? What would what would be your your dream job? And I I, I want to say that this was like I was in the just after fourth grade or fifth grade, going to school in uh, inner city San Francisco, and so people came and asked us those questions, and I. I did. I said, I want to be a cowboy. But I thought that watching television, that, you know, it was, I wanted to be one of the good guys with a white hat, mm. you know. And those guys always, they always won, you know, riding on <laughs> yeah. the horse. So I, I guess yeah. that, that was where I thought I was headed as a young kid. But um, arriving at uh, being a professional educator was, uh, you know, it was an interesting path. Yeah. An interesting path. No, I, I think you are one of the good guys. You just um, <laughs> explained to us kind of your your journey uh, helping out American Samoa uh, really get started with this education program and people receiving their master's degree um, in American Samoa. Could you give us some insight into that program, how you got going? Mm, thanks for that question and helping me come back to the theme. <laughs> uh, I... At one time, I had an opportunity to work in government. And working in government at that time, there was uh, 
in American Samoa at the time, in the 80s and 90s, uh, very new to human services. Mm-hmm. And uh, not a lot of professionally trained or qualified um, counselors or social workers. And so um, having done some study here, went to BYU Hawaii and then to the University of Hawaii School of Social Work, uh, I got the academic credentials so I could practice social work here in the state of Hawaii. And with that credential, could practice in other states in the union. Um, and so when uh, the opportunity to come back home to work in, uh, in counseling and human services or came to me and with some wrangling from my my family <laughs> that uh, you know to use my education back home at that time uh, it was a pretty simple choice uh, to go back and try to learn about human services and provide um, quality services that hadn't been part of our government system at the time. Um, there were some people that were there that had come from different parts of uh, the country mm-hmm. that started and stopped and tried to get things going. And so I really tip my hat to those people who were dedicated to providing uh, opportunities for people who weren't always the priority for help back home. Mm-hmm. Um, and then having a chance to be part of the first ever uh, professional vocational rehabilitation program with an emphasis of services to persons with disabilities in the territory. Um, because it was so new and there were so few of us involved in it, I had an opportunity to learn all different kinds of things mm-hmm. and experience them with the support of the leadership and administrators who were there. So I had an opportunity to work in uh, direct counseling. I had a caseload. I had a chance to develop um, assessment protocols to determine uh, what is the best combination of services for people and what made the best plan to help somebody who either wanted to go to work or wanted to go to school or wanted to be less of a, a burden on their own family in the village. And so... Uh, uh, being able to try lots of things um, gave me opportunity to hone my own skills and to customize them to the people that were there back home. One of the opportunities that came to me was to help others who might work in our area in human services to uh, get the academic credentials that they needed so that we could meet the government requirements for providing quality care to people with disabilities in the territory at the time. Um, And so there weren't a lot of uh, programs that you could take training for and come out as a professional counselor. There weren't a lot of people on the island who were professional counselors at the time. Mm -hmm. And the ones who were there were more than willing to try and do things, but they weren't hired as counselors. They were school principals or school uh, school teachers, or oh, wow. or they worked in the Department of Health as uh, 
public health specialists or or they worked in the pharmacy as uh, or physician assistants. Um, they had skills and they were really bright people, but their preparation for the kinds of uh, services that were needed weren't in place. And so one of the opportunities I got was to put together a training program to help us have the requisite number of qualified professionals on the island. And um, one would have been to provide training that led to some kind of a licensure locally. Uh, but we didn't have a license mechanism at the time. <laughs> uh, so um, providing training that led to uh, people's improved competencies, mm -hmm. uh, training that helped people to gain more skills so that they could help people in the village, in their families, in their homes, became a priority. But as more people participated, uh, there was, at the time, remember now, it was the 80s and 90s, um, people also wanted an uh, opportunity for those trainings to matriculate towards a degree. We didn't have a lot of people who had degrees. And so um, uh, with the support of that uh, administration and my uh, direct supervisor, uh, started communications and interaction with people in the federal government as well as people who had um, and were granting degrees for professional practitioners here in Hawaii, in California, other places in the mainland, um, to see if they would be willing to come and offer those kinds of learning experiences for people that lived in the territory who were probably going to stay in the territory. One of the difficulties was uh, talent drain. We would hire people who had skill sets, physicians, surgeons, um, even professional counselors, psychologists, um, they would come, stay for a couple years, realize they wanted to just be there for two years, and then they would leave. Yeah. And so our argument, our logic was, so let's train our people who want to be here. Mm -hmm. And let's see if we can get them the same level of competency that they would be able to practice if they lived in California or Hawaii, mm -hmm. that they could meet the criteria to get hired and do those professional services. Right. And the leadership of the government at that time was very progressive. Um, uh, they were also traditional leaders, so they had a commitment to our people uh, to see our entire society move forward through education. So I was just a guy who had a chance to try to talk to people and put together some programs that resulted in um, people getting academic credentials that ordinarily probably wouldn't have. And so a lot of those people that I work with still at home yeah. and using those credentials to provide services, develop new programs, enhance uh, people's lives because they have that uh, professional training and decided to stay home. I, on the other hand, after I was there for a while, uh, decided I would go chase some other goals. Uh, so we've been back and forth to Samoa, American Samoa, while I chase some different kinds of professional and academic goals. In your time there, um, as you were putting the programs together, what was the impact you saw um, with those that were participating in the system? That's a great question. 
Jim. I got to say this while it's on, and this I want to be recorded. <laughs> um, I'm sitting here with my niece and my nephew, who I can remember as little kids <laughs> coming to my house. <laughs> Christmas, Halloween. I remember going and watching them play ball in school. Um, and even in college, uh, going far to go see my boy, Drew. Um, playing middle linebacker after playing high school ball over here. <laughs> I have tapes of you, Jen, playing at camp school. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Power forward. <laughs> you were Make the... smile on the court. <laughs> <laughs> you were the precursor to LeBron. <laughs> um, so I, uh, I'm sitting here listening and participating, but I'm so proud of you uh, collecting and compiling um, information and um, pulling our people together through Pacific Currents and sharing information that might be helpful to others. And so, and that's the only reason I'm here is because of my, <laughs> my family came and said, let's talk about this. And so I'm, I'm happy to uh, be a part of it. Though I, there's probably, I, I still, and I said this to you before, I, there's probably others who could offer uh, more powerful insights to the questions that you ask, but I'm trying to be the obedient one. <laughs> so, impact. The impact that I would see is that uh, people who might never have had an opportunity for higher education back home mm -hmm. have those credentials. And uh, they are using those credentials in the public and private sector. Um, people that participated in one of the first master's degree programs we actually offered on the island through our Office of Vocational Rehabilitation and the American Samoa government and the Department of Human Resources um, was that they got their graduate training and they went and actually did studies to finish their master's degrees that were the groundwork for programs and development in our communities. Um, I can think of one program where we uh, helped people to start their own businesses mm. through students that um, did a study on uh, how can we use the social security benefits to help people with disabilities start their own their own programs for self-employment. Mm -hmm. And so we helped uh, I'll never forget that they did a study where, is it possible for us to help somebody in a wheelchair run their own business? And so this person that we helped, um, that was studied, actually started a, um, a uh, newspaper vending program in front of the post office. And because they were in front of the post office, it was not unusual that people would sell uh, newspapers over there, <laughs> but we helped them to set up a booth and in the booth there was glass cases so in addition to the newspapers magazines could be sold there paperbacks in addition to candy and uh, uh, what we call uh, pancake mm. uh, little pancakes <laughs> and um, juice and uh the study was to determine if this person, one, could start a viable business, if we could utilize existing federal resources to 
help with the initial materials, equipment, and supplies. Mm -hmm. And if that was a model, could we replicate that for other people? Well, what we didn't know at the beginning was that the U.S. Post Office, uh, as well as uh, funding from the Department of Transportation, make space available specifically for people with disabilities to be able to do that kind of business. So it was called the Randolph Shepard Act. And so the Randolph Shepard Act allows for people with visual impairments and other disabilities to set up their own enterprises. And so we had never had that occur. And so one of the studies from the master's degree students was to do a group research on how we could implement that and see if we could replicate it in different places. And so the the post office said, well, okay, you could try it. They did, you know, they weren't going to say no. But once we were able to do it and they saw that uh, this young man who ran that was going to be successful, now we were able to say, well, that's an example. Can we do that at the airport? Mm -hmm. And Randolph Shepard also applied through the Federal Department of Transportation at the airport. Same thing happened at the wharf. And so as an impact... Somebody did a study to see, is it possible for us to open a vending area? And uh, the students who put that together are now the people who are there back home who've had the experience of bringing somebody out of the village that ordinarily wouldn't have come out, mm -hmm. would have been hidden mm -hmm. and kept away or protected from being exposed to something like that. And now that person... Uh, is very successful in terms of their business, actually went into printing. We we bought him a copier, mm -hmm. a small copier. Yeah. And so the people above the, if you've been to uh, Pango and Utule, the post office at the time also had social security up above. And so social security would come and they would make copies, purchase their copies from this vendor. Mm. And eventually, the copy part of that business is what took off. And uh, there may still be somebody selling newspapers and paperbacks, <laughs> it, but the copying machine and that whole industry for duplication mm -hmm. and then being able to deliver duplicated copies um, all came out of one little study that some students put together wow. as part of their master's degree. So in terms of impact, it had direct impact on that person with disability and the opportunities for others to do that in different settings. We we also did uh, you know more traditional things. Uh, uh, could we we did a study using the Social Security Pass Plan to study if we could help somebody who was uh, severely disabled uh, run their own farm, mm. and so we helped them with the feed so that they could start their own chickens and a chicken farm in a village can be really successful because every egg that you get, you're going to sell. Mm -hmm. yes. And then whatever number of birds we help start them with, if you don't sell the bird, you're going to eat it. <laughs> so you're not going to lose. So win-win. Win-win all around. Right? <laughs> and so that model became very successful. Uh, again, that was a study of some students who wanted to use that as a thesis for their master's degree. And it was a model that we've been able to replicate. We did laundromats. We did a bakery. Mm -hmm. We did um, 
dry goods stores. We opened a, uh, as a result, in the village, uh, the island of Aunu, we opened a ferry mm. with a person who had a visual impairment. So it's, imagine that, a person with a visual impairment riding a boat from one wharf to another island. And so what that what that meant was we helped them ride a boat. We helped them learn how to captain the boat. Mm. And then we got somebody to also go with them and make sure, are you going to a loop or are you going to a <laughs> In terms of impact, uh, immediate impact and long-term impact, the legacy continues. Uh, in addition to those many people who got their degrees and went on to different parts of the private sector, public sector, elected officials mm-hmm. who decided to stay home, and they had the benefit of that graduate degree that's comparable to any other graduate degree in America. It's amazing. It's amazing that, uh, and you talked a little bit about the process. This is kind of off air before we started, but the process of going through that and figuring out how to do that and finding your way and asking the right questions and talking to the right people. Um, how do you, how, how were you able to navigate your way through, through all of that? Hmm. I, yeah, we were talking a little bit about that, and I apologize for getting so long-winded about no worries, it. No um, I think that the biggest, the biggest factor was that the leadership at that time in American Samoa, at the elected officials and the traditional village leaders, the Matais, mm-hmm. the people in the churches, different different religions, um, they were anxious for kids to come back. They were anxious for us to go get an education, learn something, and then come home and do something at home. Um, in my instance, I was so fortunate that for some reason they trusted me. They trusted me. Um, I don't know what warranted that before my arrival, but uh, once I had their trust, there isn't anything I wouldn't do uh, to see things move forward there back home. And so there wasn't nobody I wouldn't talk to. There wasn't a contract I wouldn't pursue. There wasn't a grant I wouldn't go after. There wasn't a program that I wouldn't go observe. See, would this work at home? Would the, could we do this? Could this help people back in my village and other villages back home? Would this work in Ta'u? Ta'u is a small island outside of Tutuila that's even a smaller, small island. <laughs> and my dad is from a small village of Fitiuta on the island of Ta'u. And so that would be my, my, uh, motivation, my, my motivation and my quality check. Okay. Could those guys doing that over there in San Diego, in Denver, in Salt Lake City, mm-hmm. could those things that are happening over there, could I figure a way so that that could happen in Fiduta? And when I pose it like that, especially to people in the federal government, you would not believe the, the care and the quality of people who work for the United States federal government. Mm. who are willing to try things, if you will just come and show that you want to see it work, 
You know, to see government work. And um, I, I benefited so much from that. Their goodwill, their competence, mm -hmm. and their willingness to see that things uh, happen back home. But I got to say, the whole thing was those guys that were back home in leadership and were chosen and elected as officials, mm -hmm. uh, they gave a bunch of us kids a chance to try to come home and use that stuff. And they trusted us. It's so great that you were able to provide um, the tools that the people on the island needed. You know, that's all that they were missing were those, just those few tools they needed to be even that much more successful. And we talk a lot on the podcast um, about uh, increasing confidence within our Pacific Island people mm -hmm. that you can do what you want to do. You can make a change. You can make a difference. Um, if you're willing to put in the work mm -hmm. and you're willing to seek out um, those tools, what are what is some um, advice? And you're still in education now and as a professor, what is some advice that you give to your students <laughs> on how to be successful um, in this day and age? Well, I... I spend a lot of time with millennials these days. Mm. <laughs> and so with the millennials, one of the things that they want to know and I try to address is what's the answer, mm. you know, and how can I get that right now, Dr. G? They call me Dr. G. Dr. G. <laughs> Dr. G, <laughs> Dr. G uh, what, you know, what do I got to do? What do I got to know? And, and they, they want to know now mm -hmm. you know the nanosecond technology is embodied in those students in the classroom yes. and those students in the classroom i want to tell you here at this campus where i work there are at least 75 different countries that are represented in the campus where i work at the last graduation i want to say 25 percent of the graduates who were part of our commencement, spoke three or more languages. Wow. So these are people who are from the world, mm -hmm. okay? And they already have skill sets that can make them global citizens. So they want to know what are, what are the answers. And what I try to remind them is answers are possible. But you got to be able to ask the right question. Mm. And as you ask the right question, you have to have a certain attitude about, am I doing my due diligence to make sure that I'm asking the right question? And so I, th I think I told you this earlier. Um, the way that you know you're doing your due diligence is you're being attentive to how you ask your question, how you perform even the most mundane duties, like for me, you were showing me how to plug into the headphones and then press the button, and now we all hear each other. You know? <laughs> and I was like, oh, I hope I don't break something. <laughs> well, that goes back also to uh, what I was telling you my grandmother tried to teach me. Uh, you need to be attentive, not only that uh, you have an assignment, but to do that assignment to the best of your ability mm -hmm. because other people depend on how well you do this assignment. And so the assignment she tried to teach me that was uh, making the sock, um, 
boiling the bananas, mm -hmm. boiling the taros, boiling the rice mm -hmm. that uh, our family is going to eat. As a kid, she would say, I work in Halloween, find the make the sucker. And I have to admit, there were a couple of times, uh, not only due to my own fault, <laughs> that, uh, you know, the sucker was late or the sucker was burnt. And, or there was no sucker. <laughs> At that time, you know, I was still learning about work ethic and yeah. what are the consequences that come with a mistake about the assignment that you're made that you, you need to complete. Um, other people could be at risk at how you go about your work. Mm -hmm. And so just because you have an answer doesn't necessarily mean it's the only answer or it's the right answer. If you ask the right question and you ask it with real intent and it has meaning and it's important, then the answer can be used. Whether you get it off of Google or whether you get it from your grandma, you got to make sure you're adding the right question answer. And so that's something I try to use with the kids in my classes, or the students, let me say that, the students <laughs> in my uh, university classes now. And so you could see how that might tie to a research question. Mm -hmm. yeah. You could right. see how that might be important when you're trying to solve a problem in the community coming at it from a policy perspective, or if you're trying to build a new program. Are you solving the right problem? All of those are part of our social work curriculum, and those are the classes I get to teach. That's so insightful. I, you know, thinking back to elementary education and further into high school, and and after that, we are so conditioned through test taking to yeah. have the right answer. So I used to get really frustrated when a teacher would teach or lecture for two hours and then test us on something completely different that mm -hmm. wasn't a part of the lecture that wasn't a part of what we're going to read what we're going to read i always thought that if you're going to give me a test you should also give me the answers mm -hmm. um, so that i can answer the test correctly but then going on into a professional career that's not how it works <laughs> they don't give you the answers <laughs> you have to figure out where to find it they may or may not give you the tools um, so being able to know what are the right questions to ask mm -hmm. becomes so important, mm -hmm. you know, and I don't think I ever had anyone tell me that before. Mm -hmm. And how you ask that question. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. So you come at that from a uh, private sector perspective mm -hmm. now, mm -hmm. having been in business, mm -hmm. having been responsible for making a budget, mm -hmm. having been responsible for achieving a professional goal mm -hmm. that other people's compensations are based on yeah. so you know what that what that means i got to be clear about what the what the goal is and am i asking the right question so that i achieve the goal mm -hmm. um, and some of that you know you can you can convey but some of it you just you know lumps and bumps and <laughs> that's <laughs> very true <laughs> Yeah, there's different ways we can learn the, you know, the school of hard knocks that you're mentioning. Mm -hmm. But uh, not all information comes from Google, despite uh, <laughs> <laughs> what, we, what we've been trained to think. Well, especially the way Google's answering people's questions today. <laughs> Google, Facebook, oh, man. YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully Google's not listening. 
<laughs> I love Google. <laughs> so our sister is really into sociology and, and education, and she mentioned that you. This could be controversial, but she mentioned you wrote in a paper about decolonizing education. Yeah. Can you educate us a little bit on what that means? Um, <laughs> And you know what? What is the impact on that on our society currently? Sure, I take a shot at it. I I got invited to a conference, and so at this conference, uh, they asked, uh, gave us an opportunity to present on uh, leadership development and the kinds of things and ways that you teach to help build leaders in our field. And so one of the things that I raised was we need to be careful how we define what a leader is mm -hmm. and how a leader is developed. And some of that comes from the thinking of what is success mm. and how a leader achieves success. And when I was talking with your sister, I was telling her that sometimes, even though we're here in the Pacific and we have heavy emphasis from Polynesian traditions and ancestry, Sometimes we use definitions for success that come from someplace else, mm -hmm. not from us. You were talking about it, mm -hmm. standardized tests. Mm -hmm. And how you perform on a standardized test, does that really help me to understand, do I know something or do I, do I know how to pass a test? Mm -hmm. And uh, the value set for passing a test isn't always one that might be congruent with our traditions. You know, something yeah. on paper pencil can be recorded and documented. And it can be recorded and documented and compared. But if I don't have a value set for what that's testing, then all I really have done is to meet a criteria that somebody else set as what's important. Mm -hmm. And so uh, at this place where I was doing this presentation, at that time I was in uh, Seoul, Korea. And was doing a presentation at an international association for social work. And so what I was trying to convey is just because somebody got a degree doesn't necessarily mean that degree assures their competence in all settings. Mm -hmm. It just means that they are able to get a degree like other people are able to get a degree and that some of the things that are part of that degree are based on assumptions that we didn't have in our traditions and in our culture. But we were able to achieve those. Mm -hmm. And so we need to be attentive to that and recognize that there are other ways to know things. Yeah. There are other ways to learn things besides just this one model. And so I tied it to how we use the descriptions for success and leadership based on a model that was imposed on our people in the colonial times, mm -hmm. when our people became subservient because we didn't have the weapons. Mm -hmm. When our people became subservient because we didn't understand the technology. Mm -hmm. And yet, our people were able to negotiate, especially in Samoa and different parts of the Marshall Islands, were able to negotiate treaties with international governments. We didn't even know where they were from. But they landed on our shores. They had the biggest boats. They had guns we never seen. So we talked to them. And we tried to help them appreciate um, 
there are differences for what you think is success and what's important from what we see as success and important. We're not afraid of your guns. We're not afraid to die. But we don't want to risk our children's lives because we don't know you. We don't understand you. And you don't understand us. And so that was part of the discussion that we were describing from our social work curricula, how we tried to be attentive to the cultural milieu, to the different value sets that people bring when they come to our campus. Mm -hmm. And as I said before, there are over 70 countries on our campus, and each of them have their own cultures, their own values and traditions. It's important for us to recognize those and not just assume the one that we have is the only one to use and the only one to be measured against and the only one to be successful. And so that was the piece about protecting against colonial controls over how we define and operationalize success in the classroom and in our professional practice. That's very interesting. And so when we start to talk about how we're trying to influence how people think and that as they think they might behave it's important for us to understand where those foundations come from. And so that's the piece I was trying to allude to with colonial and post-colonial <laughs> influences in government sector. Um, and so we use that as a discussion point in, um, in our policy class. Uh-huh. And um, sometimes it provokes some pretty interesting discussion. <laughs> I know. can imagine. Um, yeah. <laughs> and other times, uh, you know, whoosh, just go down, oh, okay. You don't want to talk about that? It's cool. Let's go memorize the textbook. <laughs> it's good. It's good to have those kind of conversations, though. I'm not shy away from it. Just because mm-hmm. sometimes it, it makes people feel uncomfortable, but mm-hmm. it's a good conversation to have. Sometimes we learn from that. Yeah. Ask the guy who missed the free throws. <laughs> I wish I had practiced that differently. <laughs> Oh, Uncle Ken, we want to thank you so much for agreeing to come on the podcast. <laughs> we use agreeing lightly. <laughs> we also want to thank Auntie Roxanne for helping you agree to come on the podcast. Shout out to Auntie Roxy. Love you, girl. But so much insight um, this evening, and, and we're really grateful for um, all you've done just in these years of, and I know it. It might seem small to you, but I'm sure there's so many lives that you've impacted. So thank you so much for that. And is there anything that you want to leave for our listeners? Any words of advice? I just want to express my gratitude to you, too, for trying to pull together an information tool that lots of people could benefit from and that it comes from a great spot. And I'm so proud of you guys. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you, Uncle. Um, if you want to ask any questions, is um, please get in touch with us at The Pacific Current, www.thepacificcurrent.com. Um, we'll forward any of your questions you have about education or the Pacific Islands to Uncle Ken, and he can get back to you. Um, find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and we'll see you on the next episode. I'm Jenica King. And this is Andrew T. Mahalo.